The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Martin Eden from director Pietro Marcello. Based on the classic novel by Jack London, this Venice and Toronto award winner was an official selection of the 57th New York Film Festival and comes to theaters starting April 17th. This week's podcast is sponsored by the River Run International Film Festival, March 26th through April 5th, featuring a film noir classic with Gigi Peru and a 70th anniversary screening of In a Lonely Place. Info at riverrunfilm.com slash getaway. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. The Berlin International Film Festival is now over, but there were a few more films we wanted to share with you. We've talked about highlights, such as new films from Christian Petzold and Hong Sang-soo. For our final episode, we're discussing new work from Tsai Ming-liang and the Golden Bear Award winner There Is No Evil from Iranian filmmaker Mohammad Rasulov. There's also a couple of films that will be appearing in new directors' new films here in New York, The Trouble with Being Born and Los Conductos. This podcast also has a bonus feature, a conversation about documentary ethics with Orwa Nairabia, artistic director of IDFA, the International Documentary Festival, Amsterdam. For this episode, I was joined by Devika Girish, assistant editor at Film Comment. Let's go to our conversations. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment, and this is our final podcast about the Berlinale, the Berlin International Film Festival, which has concluded, has awarded its prizes. All the wagons have gone home. The tents have been bundled up and put away, and the film's been put back in their canisters. At any rate, uh, we still had a few movies that we wanted to talk about, um, we being me and... Devika Girish, assistant editor at Film Comment. So we just had, you know, there actually ended up being a, a few uh, late late in the game films that uh, we want to make sure you knew about. And of course, they're the prize winners. Uh, you know, you can find that uh, online. But uh, one big winner was an Iranian film, which didn't screen for the press until Thursday, later in the festival. Uh, there is no evil by Mohammad Rasulov, uh, who was not actually allowed to attend the festival so that's uh you know one of those prizes that is a certain uh extra impact to it um and then of course eliza hitman won a prize the silver bear um for never rarely sometimes always and what were some other notable prizes um well there was the silver bear for best director which i think was a very well-deserved uh win for hong sang Soo. And I will add also best speech of the night. Oh, really? Yeah, because I was watching <laughs> the live stream and it was just three lines, which amounted to, thank you to the festival. Thank you to everyone who worked on this film. Will you please indulge me by clapping for my actresses? That's it. Beautiful. Haiku. <laughs> and uh, Paula Beer also won for Undina, uh, which also I thought was, uh, you know, just very well-deserved. She had a beautiful performance. And she is in Petzold's next film as well. Yes. So listen to my podcast with That's correct. Petzold and find the scoop. You heard it here, you heard it here first. Um, and those, of course, those were the, some of the prizes um, for the competition. There was also prizes for the Encounters section, which had its first edition this year. Um, and uh, the best film there was The Works in Days, um, a eight-hour opus um, about a 
Kyoto Prefecture Farmer. Uh, a special jury award that went to The Trouble with Being Born, directed by Sandra Waldner, uh, which we'll talk about a little later. But uh, rather than my continue to uh, list the prizes, maybe we can just talk about a movie that actually did not get a prize. And Devika, tell us what that movie is and how you feel about that. So that movie is called Days. It was a much-awaited, I would say, film by Tsai Ming Liang. Also screened quite late, and uh, I did wonder if it maybe escaped, uh, you know, viewership because of that. Although there is no evil also screened late, as you said. Well, you know, a pointless exercise to ponder the reasons for why awards are granted or denied. But definitely, I think, one of the best films I saw at the festival. Sort of expected, given the director. Uh, And I think, as many have said, it is a film that... I wouldn't say recycles, that sounds very pejorative, but it brings back a lot of his preoccupations, a lot of things we've seen in his earlier films. But it still felt so... uh, Just watching it was such a present experience for me. You know, it it was one of those uh, films I saw at this festival that just totally immersed me um, and, like, transfixed me, actually. I think that's the word for that film. Uh, And so it... It stars Lee Kang Sheng, no surprises there. And it, it sort of follows the lives of two men across different parts of the world, although this context was not entirely clear to me while watching the film, and I, I, I did some reading later. Um, you just open with this extended still shot of Lee Kang Sheng in this um, glass uh, in this house and he's gazing out of a window and you can hear the rainfall uh just it it was such a a sensuous shot and he's just gazing and it's almost I, i i lost track of time but i'm pretty sure it was five minutes or something and the funny thing is i i don't think anyone or many people in the audience uh expected it to be that long and so People started to laugh after a certain point, check their phones, look around, which I thought was so insulting to how really enrapturing that moment was. I mean, his face, as we've seen in many of Sai's films, Lee Kang-sheng's face is just uh, something to behold. And so that's how the film starts. And then it just follows his routine. Uh, and you slowly gather he's an kind of an older man with some kind of sickness that causes a debilitating neck pain. And he goes to different parts of the world, I think first Taipei and then Hong Kong and then Bangkok to procure different treatments. So there's also this extremely unnerving scene where he's getting an experimental acupuncture treatment. And again, the way that Sai is filming, it's so close up and completely minimalist. I should say, important note, no dialogue in this film. So the film starts with a statement, this film is intentionally unsubtitled. Um, and so, you know, it's very hard. It's sometimes hard to, it takes a while to moor yourself within these scenes. And in that scene, particularly, you're just seeing, first you see his face on this chair, and then you see someone inserting needles and then lighting fire to the ends of those needles. It's, it's also disorienting. And then you realize, oh, he's at a spa clinic type place. So these scenes from, uh, the life of the character played by Lee Kang Sheng are interwoven, with the life of a younger man living in Bangkok. He's a newcomer to size films uh, who lives a similarly 
kind of isolated existence, but for different reasons. He's a foreign worker in Bangkok. He's Laotian. And there are long stretches of the film just devoted to him doing household chores, cooking, bathing himself, cleaning, doing sort of various little jobs. And so it's not entirely clear at the outset how these two stories are going to meet, where exactly they're taking place, what the relation between these two men is. And that ambiguity is really something special because knowing size films, you know there's many various routes of intimacy uh, where these two stories can go various ways they can meet. And not knowing that builds up a kind of anticipation, you know, allows you to project something onto these very long static shots that are, I will say, very rich in sound, even if they lack in dialogue. And finally, the two meet. I don't know how much I should give away about that because I really loved being taken by the surprise. It's not uh, something totally extraordinary or unexpected, but they do meet in the course of another therapy that Lee Kang-shang's character is seeking for his neck. And you basically get to view this therapeutic and incredibly sensuous encounter in full, (laughs) up close. It was probably the most transfixing scene for me in the whole film and probably in the whole festival. And I thought of Pain and Glory while watching this film. Mm -hmm. Very different kind of film uh, in its style, but a similarly touching evocation Mm -hmm. of the beauty in aging, the beauty in physical pain, um, and, and and just the melancholy and sensuousness in feeling your body change and sort of coming to terms with that mm-hmm. uh, and the kinds of intimacies that come out of those, those periods in life. Yeah, it's a very beautiful description. Um, yeah, there's just this almost heavy sensual, sens- sensual feel to, to the film where you do feel like the weight of their bodies and, and also the heat. I think a little bit in, in, in many senses of that word. It's definitely a movie you want to see in a theater because you feel like you're in the same room as these people who are in a room or the, the, this person who is, who's in a room. Um, getting all manner of things done. I, I mean, the, the, the acupuncture treatment, they just seem to have like glued a bunch of stuff to his, his neck. Some of it looks like, I don't know, cork or or d'oeuvres i don't i i I don't i don't know exactly it's all rusty looking you know i i was feeling kind of nervous just being a little bit of a germaphobe and it keeps catching fire (laughs) (laughs) which i think is intentional yeah but i i think what really struck me was we think of obviously sex and sexuality as being sensuous and visceral we also think of pain but ache you know how powerfully Mm -hmm. ache can affect you even more than those two extremes and the failures of the body, just these mundane failures of the body. And so that's why I brought up Pain and Glory, because both of those films really lean into that. Yeah. And and yeah, just the fullness of time and 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 of the frame and also just the mysteries of, of how or why Lee is such a compelling human being, f- flesh and blood person to watch on screen, because there are some regards in which... He can seem sort of dull, <laughs> and yet he's he's riveting. That's it's just that's often like a source of comedy in some in some of the movies too. I feel like, um, so yeah, that's Sai Ming Liang's days, um, and that's you know longish film. I, I was just thinking again about why some of these films would be scheduled later. I guess one thing that 
these films have in common, um, Days, uh, There Is No Evil, Works in Days, are all that they are three to four hours pl- plus. Um, and maybe sometimes in the earlier part of a festival, it's harder to make the space and time, mental space as well, to, to fully absorb them. Um, but I'm, I, I did see There Is No Evil, um, which I'll just say a few words about. Uh, again, it's Mohammad Rasulov. And it's kind of uh, uh, sort of a thematic omnibus movie. You, you have um, a f- handful of, of tales, um, and they're all rotating around the, the ramifications of uh, capital punishment, um, basically from different angles. Uh, you know what what it means for people in a society to to be party to the mechanisms that involve sanctioned killing. Um, you know, and each each episode has a different twist on it. And in, in one episode, it's it's a man who works for the state apparatus professionally um, and basically pushes a button. And it's 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 kind of uh, in the style of I guess it's almost the subgenre of uh, Iranian car talk movies uh, so it's it's a large portion of this first episode is is, is a man driving uh, with his wife uh, and they're just you know talking about the day and the frustrations and they have to pick up his his wages from the bank um, and it's it's beautifully acted um, between the couple um, and you, you just get immediately the sense of their entire family dynamic um, and including their child who has the same kind of um, verve as the mother does um and i don't know there's just something musical and beautiful about seeing um a family conversation just rattle along like that um but it also turns out the husband yeah does work for the state um so that's one episode another episode is you know about a um is about a soldier um who as part of his service has to you know participate in, in, in an execution. Um, yet another episode is also a soldier who can get a furlough. It sounds like, like time off if he helps out pitches in with, with, with an execution. And then yet another is, 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 um, is about, is kind of looking more in retrospect. It's about, um, it's a bit more of a mystery, so I shouldn't really go into it, but that's more of like a, I don't know, um, in the kind of puzzle vein of Iranian films. I guess what I'm trying to say is that these different parts, each of them seem to be in a slightly different subgenre, which I thought was an interesting choice. Um, you know, one where a, a, a soldier is trying to uh, run away from, from his execution duties is openly turned into a bit of a thriller. Uh, he, you know, there's almost silly, like thriller music that, that gets played as, as he's like making his grand escape um, and seizing the moment, um, which involves putting someone else in danger. So there's that kind of moral or ethical decision. Um, I think the episodes are kind of variable quality uh, in terms of their just dramatic heft or, or, or impact. The first one, like I was saying, is I think is very strong. Um, but by the last one where you know that you know, capital punishment and and the, the sanctity of life and the moral decisions that aff- afflict us all, you know, that's going to be like at, at the core of it and, and you're just wending your way there. I think it ends up, it kind of weakens, uh, the, the movie is weakening, gets kind of weaker as it goes along because you know, everything's going to kind of circle a- around that. Um, so I don't know, maybe, you know, it's a little indebted, indebted to the Kislovsky, um, 
films where also he's he's kind of uh, rotating around um but you know those in some ways are more elegant um but um all in all um you know this is the film that won the golden bear i know there's some people who grumbled about it and felt like it was a kind of um you know uh, a choice that um because the film it's, it's a film that you can get behind um very easily um but uh, at any rate, that's there is no evil. Oh, another prize winner, not competition, yes. that I thought we could talk about a little bit, is Los Conductos by Camilo Restrepo. It mixes a lot of different modes, and I think it felt like a genuinely interstitial film to me. It's a little bit unclassifiable, which which is what made it such a distinctive viewing experience. The basic premise is that it's about a guy named Pinky, this young man who... Camilo met while working on one of his earlier shorts. And at that time, he was just living in Colombia, in Medellin, Colombia, you know, trying to find a job and get by. And Camilo became friends with him. He featured in one of his, uh, in in that short uh, that he was making at the time. And then they remained friends. And apparently he even became an assistant on the director's uh, later shorts. And slowly he came to know this man's, rather extraordinary story, which is that he had recently, a few years ago, escaped from a religious cult, uh, which was headed by a man just named or called the father. And he was grappling with the after effects of that. It had been a really violent cult where he had been goaded into, you know, committing a lot of acts of, of, of violence. And he had a lot of guilt. And he was set upon revenge, and he believed that the only way he could fix his wrongs was by finding this man and killing him. So Camilo really set up this film as an experiment where Pinky would be able to kill the father, but in this fiction film format, and see what kind of sort of moral explorations that would lead to. Mm-hmm. So it's like this interesting, it's it's not like, something as simple as a docu-fiction hybrid, but something that came from a true story, a real character, and then becomes an exploration of both memory and morality and and different kinds of mental spaces. And the film, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's so idiosyncratically yeah. structured. Uh, it's, it's all shot on 16 millimeter film and it's exquisite to look at. Every frame is so material and sensuous. I mean, there's certain scenes in the beginning that are just a dark frame with little pinpricks of light. Uh, and you follow those trying to sort of piece together, you know, a sense of perspective. There's shades of noir at the beginning where you see him Mm -hmm. shooting a man. There's a little bit of ethnographic style documentation where you see him working at a t-shirt factory. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of this is just like saturated color and always a sense of play. And then there's also quotations from other texts. There's a poem by Gonzalo Arango uh, called Elegy to Revenge, which appears in the end, but its mm. themes are sort of interwoven throughout. And it's a reference to sort of a, a vigilante bandit from 1950s Colombia and a prophecy about his return, how this desire for revenge is going to overtake the youth of Colombia if there is no end to to the violence that has really ruined um, society there for many years now. There's also a reference to the satire, The Lame Devil, Hmm. which is about a fallen angel who's freed by a young criminal and in return grants him total vision, like vision of the Hmm. lives of everyone on earth. And sort of ex- exposes the the 
what it means to live as a human being and have to make choices and to not know everything. Mm. And then there's like this wonderful little interlude that references an old TV show about two clowns called mm. Baby and Nut. And it's very ridiculous and parodic, but also a deeply sad story about this young TV actor who became became a drug addict. And so he's kind of interweaving all of these narratives together into, I, I don't want to call it call it dreamlike because I think it's something different. Um, it, they're, they're just the, the story just kind of moves from one to the other, moves from one state to the other and unfolds sort of and because sound plays such an important role, there's a really interesting score that um, changes the tempo and the rhythm of the film ever so often and a voiceover by the director himself that, sometimes tells a story that doesn't even always correspond to what's happening on mm. screen. So there's really this sense of multi-textuality here, uh, but also a sense of coherence because of the form of the film. There is a consistent visual and tactile sense to the film, a consistent sense um, of the way it's lit. There's a lot of comedic moments involving especially production. Mm. Uh, you know, the printing of the... There's like fake Adidas t-shirts being screen printed by Pinky when he's working at a t-shirt factory. Uh, he has some interesting standoffs with his fellow workers. So th there's all these various episodes, and I'm not quite sure what they coalesce into, but it's just incredibly entertaining yeah. and also very sad. Yeah, I, this... This has been a strange experience listening to you explain this because this was... <laughs> Sorry. No, because I say explain because this was very early in my viewing in Berlin and I was deep into jet lag. So this has been kind of like having someone else remember one of your dreams for you. Which is what the film really kind of is. And that's mm. how Restrepo, who I interviewed, and hence I know a bit too much, a bit yeah. more about it than I <laughs> gleaned because I was at your screening too. And yeah. um, I was also, I, I couldn't tell if it was my failing, you know, ability to stay awake or the film structure. Yeah. And he kind of described it as a lot of these references are constructed from his own memories of being a child mm. and watching TV or reading things. And then also he's really trying to reconstruct his subject's memories as mm. a director and kind of visualize them in a way, in a space where Pinky can act out various urges, various possibilities that his life could take. So mm. really what you just said, I think, <laughs> is how the movie is. Yeah. It feels like you're watching someone tell a third person's memories act mm. out a third person's dreams and it 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 really does make for a very unusual experience i i just couldn't place the film you know i mean not just in terms of where it's located i just couldn't place it in a kind of tradition or a mode because it switches things up so frequently but it mean it's it has a consistent rhythm which which really struck me yeah and it's 16 millimeter, right? Yes, all of it. And yeah, if you know, if you need another example of the strange alchemical property that 16 millimeters seems to have in terms of the peculiar relationship it has with your own brain and memory and senses, this is uh, a film that 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 does that. I promise I won't use the T word tactility. Damn it, I just did. But that's not even all I of it. I think I beat you to it, yeah, so I'll take the. It's <laughs> blame. Well, yeah, it's all, yeah. Anyway, we're gonna start sounding like we're 
tripping at a certain point but <laughs> but uh yeah there's just a way that it's like it's like when you stare into a candle or something that that kind of intensity of the and texture to a evanescent thing um so yeah that was los conductos uh, camilla restrepo um look for devica's interview um with um camilla restrepo online um, but i'm going to talk a bit about um the Trouble with Being Born, The Trouble with Being Born, uh, directed by Sandra Wallner. And it sounds is... like a really fun title, Nick. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I, I'm thinking this was probably a comedy, right? <laughs> trouble with Being Born. Well, there is an absurdity to it. I mean, the, the, the material, um, Devika is referring to the, some of the, uh, some horrific content in the film, but definitely there's this, the style of the film is not meant to, um, horrify you, I think, and that's part of what actually makes it um, kind of terrifying. But um, the story is about, um, and largely from kind of filtered through the perspective of a an android whose name is Ellie, um, and the movie starts off in, in an almost avant-garde mode, um, almost like a brackage, like moth-like kind of. Um, you can't really tell what you're looking at or how or through what it's almost like the birth of a consciousness in the beginning. Um, but then you end up entering into, um, Ellie's life, which unfortunately, uh, involves living with a middle-aged man, um, who is a father figure, except, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, also they appear to have some sort of, um, uh, a, a sexual relationship um, and she's a, a child so that is the overtly disturbing and horrifying thing about the movie however the way the movie is is made is filtered through her consciousness and it is a consciousness that is just sort of constantly still being formed her memories it's not clear if, um, where they're from or what they are if she is somehow based upon an actual girl who existed um and that's part of the genius of uh, Wolner's film is this uh, control of um, just this sort of vagueness to, to the color palette. There's a fuzziness to um, the the, um, the girl's face who plays Ellie, um, who wears a mask. It's actually a silicone mask. Um, read all about it in my interview with Sandra Wolner, <laughs> also online. Um, and so she always seems somehow indistinct. Um, so... But it's it's not quite played for like a pathos like uh, the you know an AI um, or something. Um, it's 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 something unnerving in a different way that I haven't quite seen in movies about um, robots and and how they end up kind of reflecting the worst about humanity. The movie then moves on to um, uh, a, a kind of later chapter in in Ellie's life that happens by accident, um, which involves an elderly lady who which involves an elderly woman who uh, is, is kind of seems to need a, a companion or something. Uh, it doesn't really get any less um, uh, un unnerving, um, maybe just less, <laughs> I don't know, uh, criminal. But uh, it's, it's, it's the, the thing that, yeah, I, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's quite a, uh, an extraordinary film. It's her second feature. Um, and it really, for me, ended up being about the persistence of trauma and that these robots that seem to be catering to particular desires or needs 
um, you know, whether ex- extremely abominable um, or quite basic in the case of, of the elderly woman's need for just someone to be around, don't actually function in a healthy way. Needless to say, in the first part, obviously, it's not healthy, but it's it's also just really creates and perpetuates trauma, which is something I've never quite felt in a movie. Um, I mean, there's always something off-putting about a very human-like android um, who you know can't feel pain, but is undergoing experiences that are deeply painful. Um, and that's always, you know, it's like it's watching s- someone, but it's really a something that you want to be able to save, um, but don't even fully understand or know. So deeply uncanny um, and a, a real real balancing act in, in terms of, of, of the film's own identity. Um, because it's not a science fiction film. It's not like it sets up a premise and then like plays with it um it's really all about um point of view and perspective and and consciousness um and yeah look for it in new directors new films where actually uh, you can also watch um los conductos um so yeah that's the trouble with being born which even talking about i start just kind of vanishing into a dark unhappy place um but it's 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 a remarkable film i, I really liked well, liked is a strange word, but I was really touched by what you just said about a someone being a something that you want to save. That yeah, that, yeah, that sounds very interesting. I haven't, I haven't seen the film. Uh, I gathered that it was dark and sort of depressing, but yeah, but but I don't. But the thing is, she is an Austrian director, but it's it, it, which often means you know, like in the tradition of Michael Haneke, there's one kind of. Um, just underlining you know this kind of vanishing point of of 20th century 21st century awfulness of the modern condition she's not quite in 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 that place um um so that's part of what makes it makes it interesting as well um it's not really serving to 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 show us evil or to make it as um to to show us somehow that humanity is is evil um yeah it's hard to it's it's hard to describe beyond, beyond that um, but yeah, definitely through a glass darkly. <laughs> um, but there's a sense of absurdity too, and and there are moments like like that that can also be, um, yeah, ab- absurdly, um, darkly, um, comedic. Um, you know, later on. So yeah, that's the trouble with being born, uh, Sandra Wallner, and I think we probably might um, wrap up, um, there. Um, but just to mention a couple more films, because one other side of the festival that maybe we haven't talked as much about were the documentary films that are there. Um, uh, Devika, I know you saw the Zsa Zsanka, uh, film, which was a little bit low profile considering his, his stature, I guess, in, in terms of the festival. Yeah. Yeah. And it also screened in the special gala section, hmm. which, maybe does not get you know garner as much discussion as a section it's not really a competition yeah um and also it is a more minor film i actually when i walked out of it i didn't quite know what to make of it i i felt underwhelmed but it's grown on me because at first glance it does seem a little bit by the numbers mm-hmm. so it's it's a portrait of the cultural revolution and sort of recent and not so recent changes in China, yeah. uh, you know, modernity, urbanity, also literacy, how those big shifts have affected people's 
kind of intimate and individual lives. And it's relayed through many different chapters, which in clusters focus on different well-known Chinese writers. And so I do feel a little underqualified to speak about this film because I wasn't actually familiar with most of the, those writers or their work. So I'll keep this brief and I'm sure we'll have someone, you know, give us a deeper perspective on the film. Uh, but yeah, it just kind of goes to each of these writers who just is usually seated somewhere and tells stories and anecdotes from their life as a young person, how they became a writer. Many of them tell stories of poverty, of moving to the city, of, you know, finding success, all of these things of filial, familial relationships, of love, of having children, generational changes also. And they're interspersed with quotes from their various works. There's some beautiful landscapes. So it, it's all just very gentle and, and moves easily. The chapters are varyingly sized. So some of them are, you know, a couple minutes long. Some others are longer. So there's this kind of nice erraticness to the film as well. And so when it was done, I thought, okay, so I just saw a bunch of talking heads and I was talking to a couple people who said, oh, you know, it feels like he was doing research for, for some other film and he made it into a documentary. In retrospect, I think I it took a while for me to understand like or to appreciate what how the film affected me. I think it's just, it it is kind of, bold to do something so simple too especially after his last film was ashes purest white and then to do just something which is very simple and very much very humanist i it's kind of a loaded word but this is a film that really gives in to people's stories and and pays attention not just to the stories but how people remember and kind of draws up this collective memory through individual memories that are not even overtly political in themselves always. But of course, we know that you get the best and most incisive political portraits of a place from stories that don't seem eventful at all, you know, that that are just about the everyday textures of life. And so I just... In retrospect, I thought actually that was that is in line with a lot of his other films, more dramatic films and his genre films and, you know, earlier films like Platform and films about the Cultural Revolution. He's also obviously made a lot of documentaries and had this uh, had a kind of tradition of work as a documentarian. And it, it sort of is, I guess, an extension of I Wish I Knew, which also was a documentary with conversations uh, with filmmakers and other, you know, intelligentsia, quote unquote. Um, and so it, it it is an extension of things that we've seen him explore that ultimately, I think, is a work, if not of great ambition, it's, it's a work of great attention. It's called Swimming Out Till the Sea Turns Blue. And the, the title comes from the final little episode and it's quite uh, a lovely episode and one of the writers says something to that effect so okay yeah <laughs> if you were all very puzzled about <laughs> what it meant it's a lyric very lyrical title um and uh, i mean almost on the other side of the the spectrum of of what you can do with a non-fiction form um would be gunda um this the celebrated gunda um which was picked up uh 
by Neon, which is, I mean, maybe I should have made that the punchline for for the uh, for for my description of it. Um, I, I won't talk too much about it. It's by Victor Kosakowski, who maybe people know now because of Aquarella, which was a f- the film he made that was um, distributed with Atmos Sound um, about water and ice and the wilds of Russia. Um, this is a movie about a is that is centered on a sow, a a pig, a pig mom, who has a whole bunch of piglets, uh, and it's, I mean, first of all, I mean, you just want to observe that that's like a a big, it's a big thing to tackle to try to make a effectively like a nature documentary um, when you know there are. 70 years plus of, of nature documentaries, not to mention like the kind of exhaustive visual alphabet of like planet earth, um, which, and, and, and any other of all the different perspectives that everywhere they, they stick a camera, um, you know, and, and in this case, uh, it's, so it is a bit of a challenge and, you know, it's funny, this is a movie where, you can't even always figure out um, how or where he's he's able to get the shots that he does, but um, it basically f- follows the sow and gets a sense of her hanging out, for lack of a better word, of her. I don't want to say consciousness, but her her. I mean, her being, her presence, and and in as much as you 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 feel um, emotions without her being humanized, uh, you know, anthrop- anthropomorphized, um, you kind of feel her reactions to what's going on around her. Um, I mean, she's not the only show in the barnyard town. There are also the piglets. Uh, there are also um, cows. Um, and there are also chickens. Um, there's a terrific scene with a chicken or two um, when they are let out into like a little field and they are not sure whether they should walk in this field. And they really want to be careful about embarking upon steps in this field. So it's these moments um, where you're watching thought processes, which is, I think, something that Kosakovsky does well in his movies. Um, and another film that he, he did, which is actually kind of a short film uh, with, with his son in, involved um, showing his son a mirror for ostensibly the first time and just watching the child's reaction and of course filming it. So it's, it's, that's kind of the acme of, of his finding these, these strange little bent moments um, that maybe you shouldn't even be watching, but somehow are seeing um, some glimpse into a, into a psyche, into a psychology um, that you don't even expect to happen in a documentary in, in, in such a direct, but also oblique way. And likewise, this like, um, I have to say, like, I wasn't um, wasn't riveted throughout this movie. That's probably because it's very bucolic. You know, sometimes things aren't happening. Um, but the payoff, undeniably, is, is this final sequence um, where the sow, Gunda, is is reacting um, to um, reacting. It's kind of a long reaction scene, and it's just kind of incredible. I don't even understand. Um, I mean, at one point, she even looks into the camera. And from a distance, because it's not like it's it's all like framed. Um, it's it's not like it's a following shot in like primary or something. Um, so that kind of moment where you are able to kind of empathize and imagine, um, it's one of the it, it is a, it's a sequence that's more persuasive as like um, you know 
animal rights or ecological without being polemic at all than any number of movies that tally up, um, you know, how many cattle are slaughtered and in, in, in terrible conditions um, because it's because of that moment of like identification and, and feeling what, what the sow is feeling. So uh, yeah, definitely a distinctive um, film object, despite being in this pretty familiar arena of, oh, how can we, you know, show animal behavior? Um, I mean, one trick he apparently did is that the barn that the, or the, I don't know, shack where the sow lives with the piglets um, was actually had no walls or something so he could film around it. I'm not sure how that works given what's actually in the movie, um, but that's fine. That's show business. That's documentary. And actually, speaking of documentary... And show business. And show business. <laughs> um, um, we're going to finish our this kind of section of the conversation, but um, we had a conversation with Gunda uh, that actually turned into a conversation about everything, really, <laughs> um, from documentary ethics um, to, um, I don't know, all sorts of ethics. And to festival programming of documentaries. Mm-hmm. And it was with um, a, a great... Um, programmer Orwa Narabia, who is the artistic director of IDFA, um, a documentary film festival in Amsterdam, which I attend and have attended. So instead of like trying to talk about specific films, it kind of turned into something else and something very interesting. Um, so we're going to be back with that um, after a message. We'll just leave, leave it at that. So in, enjoy our conversation with, with Orwa. Delica? Yeah. Yeah. Many interesting takes and nuggets await in the second part of this so yeah so stick around and thank you for joining us yes uh, thank you and uh, now for something completely different the film comment podcast is sponsored by kino lorber presenting martin eden from director pietro marcello based on the classic novel by jack london and an official selection of the 57th new york film festival the film stars luca marinelli in a marvelously committed performance that won him the best actor prize at venice writing for film comment Imogen Sarah Smith called it a kaleidoscopic historical fantasia that seems possessed by the ghosts of Italian cinema. Martin Eden opens April 17th at Film at Lincoln Center and IFC Center before expanding to select cities. This week's podcast is sponsored by the 22nd River Run International Film Festival, March 26th through April 5th in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, featuring over 170 films from 41 countries. This year's archival spotlight features films by Rod Serling with special guest Anne Serling and Planet of the Apes makeup effects artist Tom Berman. Travel packages at riverrunfilm.com slash getaway. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nick Rapold. I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. And we're here again at the Berlin International Film Festival, the Berlinale. And we've been talking about the films we've been seeing, uh, plenty to choose from, but we haven't talked a lot about documentary. Um, and I, I have a prime person to delve into that with me. Um, I'm very pleased to be joined by... I'm Orwan Erebia, the artistic director of the International Film Festival, Documentary Film Festival Amsterdam, ITFA. And I'm, uh, as usual, very happy to be uh, to, to join you guys yes. and to uh, try and look at what's happening with documentary film. Yes. Um, and we, we were having a little bit of a discussion just before we start, which we'll get into. But I also want to introduce um, my co-pilot. Devika Girish, assistant editor at Film Comment. And licensed pilot. And yes, I have many talents. <laughs> um, but we were talking about a little bit about um, bloody noses, empty pockets, um, because that's that's a film that was at Sundance is also showing here. One of the many Sundance imports, mm-hmm. which I've been told is uncharacteristic. Uh, I'm 
I don't know. It is very it is? new. Okay. It is very new, yes. Mm. It happened before, but it's happening uh, so much more this year than usual. And uh, yeah, that's which I don't really have a problem with. I don't know. Some people I actually like that. Yeah. I think it's a positive uh, uh, approach. Yeah, yeah. Um, it gives things an added life and lets you see certain films in different contexts that, I mean, lots of contexts are significantly different from, from Sundance. I'll leave it at that. Oh, yeah. I uh, mean, the souvenir, uh, the souvenir came here example. from Sundance last year. So yes. That was an, uh, yeah, but there is always space in competitions and so on in main lineups of festivals for what is really unique to the festival. However, I think that there is something necessary in festivals being able to present themselves, their uniqueness, their own uh, character or identity through their main lineups with real world premieres. But it should also cross over from the old school of, allow me to say, uh, um, a little too much of a male approach to competition where it is very, uh, like the ones who take a premiere after the others are the weaker ones and the real real champions are the ones who would never accept to take a premiere from anybody else you know so i think that Ownership this kind this of kind of yeah. yes uh, who's uh, uh, who's what's the word whose uh, world premiere number is the biggest is the strongest or like it's it's i think it's very basic understanding of of uh, uniqueness of festivals so yes i think berlinale and sundance has always been two very different festivals and if we lose that we lose something the, the, this diversity in taste in approach uh, enriches my life as a cinephile not only as a festival director however not to the extent of saying this film was touched by the other festival. Right. <laughs> We're not going to touch it anymore. That's, yeah. I think, a bit yeah. childish and ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it, it, a little overboard. So you're, you're, but you're looking for films here as well for for programming ITFA, right? Uh, yes, I must say that for ITFA, um, uh, over the past two years, at least when I'm uh, the artistic director, the, we've been having. Um, non-premiere uh, sections of ITFA have been picking more films from Berlinale than any other festival. Mm -hmm. I think generally we've been picking films from Berlinale and from uh, Vision du Riel in Switzerland, mm -hmm. uh, mostly more than other festivals, yes. Yeah. So it's a very good pool. Maybe there's a certain intersection in taste, but there's also many documentary films in Berlinale. I'm hearing it's the total is a little more than 100 documentary mm. films between short and long and experimental and uh, everything so it's it really gives a you lot. <laughs> sense yeah. of the scope of the festival yeah definitely yeah but it's also the scope of documentary film that was what we have been discussing even in a panel yesterday with other festival directors and mm -hmm. and trying to see is this a danger to documentary film festivals or not mm -hmm. and getting to the point where it's in a way of course it's not easy to navigate mm -hmm. this map uh, that is new however it also means that we won because now documentary film gets the full platform everywhere, unlike what it used to be, to be 10 right. years ago. Yeah. 10 years ago, we needed documentary film festivals because documentary film was very, very rarely welcome right. outside of these. Now it's not the point. Now we, ha we, we need yeah. to have a more precisely imagined 
identity why do we do this what kind of films what mm-hmm. kind of community service can we do and when i say community service i mean documentary filmmakers community yeah yeah no so yeah so it's like a, it's a victim of documentaries and on on this stage is almost a victim of its, its success but i guess the next stage will be getting you know even more adventuresome documentary into the kind of main platforms of things um I just want to mention one film that I, I cited for that we did end up showing in, in a film common selects program, which was um, Los Reyes, um, which is an interesting movie because it's in some ways it's immediately um, appealing um, just because it's about two dogs, um, but also is a, you know, partly a landscape film, partly, you know, very interesting in how it plays with point of view and, and very re- removed in many ways, but also very close up. It, it oscillates in an interesting way. Um, so that's a movie that maybe... Maybe one of these days that's a movie that'll be like an Academy Award nominee or something, something like that. Um, but speaking of animals, maybe we can just jump to a movie uh, that, uh, that is showing here uh, by Viktor Kozakovsky, who's actually a regular at, at, at IDFA, I'd say. Um, and that is Gunda. Uh, and uh, this is basically a movie about a s- series of barnyard animals focusing on Gunda, who is a sow, a a pig, a mother of, I don't know, 12, 13. She has a large family. Um, and it follows them from there, you know, went from being born and they're growing up and to an ending, which is quite extraordinary. That's the kind of narrative flow of it. But, uh, you know, it's it's really a, a total audiovisual uh, experience in terms of being up close um, with animals in a different way. Um that's my kind of bland general description of it. But or what, what was you know reflecting on that movie? What what how did you think of it? Also, you know, in his career. First of all, I think it's a brilliant film. I, I have to say that I, I I love it. However, I think it is going to stay for a long time as a case study when I'm discussing film, because the way it was presented, the way it's being sold, and with the huge distribution interest that it's getting today around the world yeah uh, I, I i think the way it is being presented is so different from the film itself so i read in in the trades that this is a film that will make you stop eating meat right which is something that is absolutely against the core of Viktor Kosakovsky's career, not because it's part of his career to eat meat. He, I know he's been always a vegetarian, okay. but that's but because uh-huh. he always stood against this utilitarian, pragmatic use of film, because he was always for trying to to really find and search for the language of film in a way that is independent from such pragmatism. And to me, that was immediately like, what's happening here? How come Kosakovsky is making something so suddenly directly pragmatic? Mm. The other thing was the photo, the still of Gunda and her uh, baby uh, pig. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's very <laughs> beautiful, but it also kind of comes with that sentence and makes you feel, okay, this is seems to be uh, a film presented as a animal... Um, nature tearjerker or something you know it was something that was to me like what's happening here what is Viktor Kosakovsky doing (laughs) he sold out yeah (laughs) and then I saw the film Mm -hmm. and no the film is way more complex and and visually interesting and so much less melodramatic or uh, uh, 
it, it felt way cheaper when I saw how it was presented. But I, when I went and watched the film, I was not disappointed in any way. It's the opposite. So yes, when you look at the careers of these very few superstar documentary filmmakers out there, and Viktor Kosakovsky is certainly one of them, but there are a few. This is like Viktor Kosakovsky, Sergei Laznitsa, uh, Gianfranco Rosi. It's not many around the world. And when I look at his career, I see something a little similar in the past few years um, because th there are two phases I might say in the in the filmography of Kosakovsky. One was with so much smaller scale filmmaking that was fascinating. That was something like if you want to compare uh, if you compare for example a Bob Dylan song mm -hmm. to uh, to Hamilton. <laughs> okay. So yeah. first half of his career was all Bob Dylan songs. Uh -huh. And then suddenly he started making these big Hamilton-sized films. <laughs> so Aquarella, right. Vivan Lanlas, and Antipodas. And mm -hmm. now this one is a bit going back, you know, to, to the smaller uh, uh, scale. And in both cases, he was always successful in different, to different levels, but generally always successful. Uh, in the second half, like Vivan Las Antipodas, then Aquarella, and now this one, I would say it is something that reminds me of the motivation of, of Kubrick, for example, where where the film is motivated by something that makes you sleepless, by having this idea stuck in your head that something is going to really, really kill all of us. And I have to make a film, and I have to shout out loud with a film. But then the film comes and it doesn't just shout out loud, let's stop this, let's move, let's mobilize, let's, you know, it doesn't come to explain to you the truth. It comes to invite you to an experience that makes you respect yourself as a human and feel your own integrity and think about how we can really all survive with integrity, uh, which is, I think, something that breaks from the um, traditional understanding that's be still being sold, which is, to me, amazing how this persistent simplification, when I hear something about documentary film being something like, uh, it was just said today in an event uh, here, uh, visual journalism, or somebody calling, uh, speaking about documentary film as responsible for the truth. And I don't I, know I, what that means. I, I, actually. Yeah, but I, 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 as I, because fiction is supposedly acting, right. so it's fantasy and imagination, and it's lying, lying, while documentary is the reality, so it's the truth, and then these very basically religious uh, 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 definitions of the truth. You know, to, to me, this is not coming from anywhere but basic, simplified, populist, religious views like the truth. It will set you free, it will take you to heaven, otherwise you're going to hell. You know, uh, so linear, so black and white. Moralism. But even basic, moral, you know, like sim simplified moralism. And to me, this is a killer. This will kill any attempt of making meaningful cinema or art in general. Um, so this is what I'm liking about something like Gunda. It's that 
yes, this is a film that tackles one of the most first world popular uh, uh, issues, which is the uh, global warming and food uh, policy and food politics. Uh, it is, of course, a global problem, but of course it sells only in the first world. Uh, people in the rest of the world are uh, too angry, hungry, and uh, deprived of their basic rights to be ready to line up in long, you know, uh, uh, queues to go and see what happens uh, with that. I mean, that's also a reality that there is this first world or Western focus on this. It doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's wrong. But this is the market. However, it doesn't come to fulfill the prophecy. It doesn't come to say, hello, green fighters, hello, all of you environmentalists, let's come and sit together and feel good about ourselves, which I think is what many documentary films are doing. And I dare say this is happening way more in the USA than in the rest of the world. So I get so much more lessons out of documentary films coming from the USA than from other places. And I think this is uh, dangerous. So we use the lying of someone like Donald Trump against him. I'm happy, I enjoy that. But then we claim that we have the truth. To fight the lying, we claim that we own the truth and we start selling it and we start you know, distributing the truth. And I think that's the most populist thing we can do. I think it's, a, it's as populist as Donald Trump lying. And I think this di didactic or this di educational uh, approach is really in the lines of what uh, early socialism did in the Soviet Union, where it was about raising awareness and consciousness of the people, and that was the most basic propaganda at its core. So, I, uh, to me, it's simple. Propaganda is bad, even when it defends me personally, even if it defends ideals that I believe in. Propaganda is short-sighted, and is harmful. Yeah, anything that claims a monopoly on the truth, you know, that's that's itself an assertion of a certain amount of, uh, of power. Um, and, you know, also consequently denies an actual evaluation of the artistic craft and intent of a film. So like in Gunda, yeah, it doesn't come out swinging. You know, it, it doesn't start with like, it doesn't have like a hard cut from like a, uh, you know, like a slaughterhouse to Gunda or vice versa or something like that. I will say I'm glad I heard this spiel. I haven't seen the film yet, but when I saw the marketing in those terms, I sort of struck it off my list because I, yeah, I thought it would be this. I mean, I knew it would be more complex because it's by him, but still I didn't want this pro-vegan screed or something. And yeah, so I'm glad you said this on the podcast so people know to ignore that messaging. But uh, the links you just drew between like the rise of fake news and this so-called responsibility of truth, we started talking about bloody nose, empty pockets, and, and we didn't go into that. But I did encounter like some people reacted negatively to that film after it showed in the documentary section at Sundance uh, because they felt like it was an irresponsible choice in the age of fake news. And to me, that is so baffling because it assumes that documentary is something in and of itself as opposed to, or even truth, 
you know, fake news, we call it fake or real because it's presented to us in a context that has a clear so defined social purpose. Documentary isn't that. It's just a name we have for a kind of film that, you know, uses the real, like uh, the, whatever you want to call the real in interesting ways. And so to me, the idea that because fake news is rising, documentarians have to be, you know, careful about how they present their own realities. It's It, it was just completely puzzling to me. And also, I think uh, Eric Hines mentioned uh, maybe on this podcast or, or in some writing that the strategies that the Ross brothers use in that film are not that different from the strategies used by many documentaries. They're just foregrounding it in a way um, that forces us to engage with that conceit instead of invisibilizing it or making it just this accepted part of the construction of a documentary. Uh, I don't know, Orva, if you had any thoughts about that. I know you said you haven't seen the film, but... To, to, to me, it is, again, this kind of... This expectation, this classification of documentary film as documentary and not film. So um, I, I think this problem starts here. It's terminology that grew with a tradition in film, that where, where movies are the things made in Hollywood which are very fun and entertaining and not real, and then the invitation. You pay for the ticket you you know, because you would like to escape reality. If you want to face reality, it's... A documentary and a documentary is what it's the truth so i think this basic very very simplified uh, approach makes throws documentary film out of film you know and it becomes it doesn't stay as documentary and fiction it becomes documentary and film and documentary filmmakers would get always the the, the question so when are you planning to make a real film you know, so when we, we I, I started my career as an actor. I studied acting. I'm an actor by training. And, uh, and it's, I think, the faith of many actors and anybody who spends their uh, years, you know, with the art of acting would never accept this idea that acting is lying. You know, that this is absolutely not the way to understand this art. Same thing in the opposite way applies to documentary film. So it, then we just consider acting is lying, non-acting is truth. And we define, we say non-fiction because we define it by negation, you know, like it's, it's defined by not being that good thing or that money-making thing or that I don't know what the, the basis of this is. And then we go back, what is it? What, Anybody who knows filmmaking knows that there is uh, that any claim of objective truth, truthfulness, is actually a big, big bluff. It's a big uh, commercial, you know. It's a commercial idea. It's a sales line. That uh, filmmaking is so great that it doesn't leave space for that any little choice you make one frame shorter here before the cut 10 frames longer there before the cut which cut first before on which one is second how do we all, all of the the, the the camera angle until the the way sound is treated and it, there's nothing here about the truth 
So there is something that is way more complex than the simple notion of truth or truthfulness. I can say sincerity, I can say honesty, I can say, uh, uh, you know, deception uh, in the other side. I can say somebody trying to uh, manipulate, but I cannot say truth. This word is uh, truly uh, in itself uh, a trap. It's, it's deception you know to keep using it in this way yeah yeah and i mean and this is something that crept up with um uh, just to bring it back to 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 a to a, a, a film the um, bloody noses because it's a film that uses a certain amount of sleight of hand uh, to to for its for its to tell its story and this the particular sleight of hand is that it's it's about a las vegas dive bar but it's actually shot in the interior of a bar in new orleans um and it's supposed to be the last night of the bar. But of course, I think this New Orleans bar is actually still thriving because um, it's New Orleans. I think bars do well there. Um, and then there are outside shots, which are from the outskirts of Las Vegas, um, including some that were actually shot five or 10 years ago, even. So it's this wonderful pastiche that is then presented um, with the help of people who are not regulars of this bar. They're actually people that were almost cast in a way, but then we're given the freedom, some as actors, I think some as non-professionals, just to, okay, be a person at a bar for eight hours, <laughs> which I think at a certain point escapes your capacity to can, act. Can I ask, I don't know. This, this yeah. uh, to me, in the history of cinema, and the history of documentary filmmaking, this has been a question, this, yeah. this incident you're describing and how this critique in Sundance, uh, etc. this year, is something that happened every three years in a different country, in a different... And like, this has always been there. It's nothing new. What's new now is that it has more visibility because of this question of... Uh, because of Donald Trump, basically, or the right-wing uh, uh, manipulation of, of things. But then we go to film, back to film, to cinema, mm -hmm. and we see some of the greatest masterpieces that had a lot of staging, a lot of playfulness. So now we know what the uh, most recent example would be, for example, the, the, the uh, oh my God, my memory, the, the last uh, Dylan Scorsese film. Oh, yeah. Um, thunder. Rolling Thunder. Oh. Yeah, Rolling Thunder. Yeah? Yeah. So Scorsese's Dylan's mm -hmm. Rolling Thunder, new uh, documentary film. Mm -hmm. Is it documentary? Would it be scandalous if it was included in a documentary film lineup? Mm -hmm. After we know that it is heavily, heavily staged, mm -hmm. is it fiction? Would it should it be put? Would Sharon Stone in it be nominated for Best Actress Award? <laughs> okay, she, right. we know she's acting in it, mm -hmm. but does this make it fiction? Is it? Did it leave documentary film? Did mm -hmm. it enter fiction? Where is it? Exactly. Mm. I truly, sincerely don't care, and I couldn't care less. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, this playfulness should not be censored. Yeah. No. no. It, it's. It's. Yeah. It, 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 I don't need someone to come and uh, tell me the truth about what happened with Dylan during the Rolling Thunder <laughs> tour. I'm like, come on. I yeah. truly don't care. <laughs> And I'm a big yeah. Dylan fan, by the way, yeah. and I'm a Scorsese <laughs> fan too. And I don't care, you, don't care. <laughs> you know. Like it's, yeah. And I don't have the time nor the 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 the, the uh, need, yeah, to examine, you know, because I believe it. I don't believe it as the truth. I believe it as a sincere 
effort, as a mm-hmm. as an engaging story that I am sure doesn't mean me harm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that's good for me. Yeah, you know, uh, those who try to sell me on the truth, mm-hmm. I I probably feel they mean me harm. Right. Yeah. I guess that's the meaning of the the, the term confidence man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, I'm just curious, like as as a, as a programmer, um, is, is what's the what's the scale? You know, how much like a movie like Rolling Thunder you would program in in Infa, um, but a, a movie that was I'm trying to think of something else. I don't know that was more that was more or mainly reenactment or was all. You no, know, we had a film that was a big big success in Itfa, mm-hmm. 2017 or 16. I don't remember. That was the mm-hmm. Polish filmmaker Paweł Lejinski. A film was called "You Don't Know How Much I Love You," okay, and that was a film that basically is all set in a series of therapy sessions between a mother and a daughter. Hmm. But actually, it is uh, the mother and the daughter sitting in front of the therapist in the therapist's office hmm. are uh, they're not a mother and daughter, and it's all constructed. Each one of them is telling her own story as if with her mother as a therapist and the other one as if with her daughter and a therapist. Uh And it's fascinating to see how the two stories fit. But but it's each from their own individual lives, not intersecting. Wow, okay. But then you just get one sentence at the end of the film that tells you... By the way. By the way. (laughs) But it's really a one short sentence. It's not even an explanation of how this happened. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but then you discover that in if we're measuring t- truth, mm-hmm. the whole film is staged entirely. You know, like that mm-hmm. it makes it work in this way between three phases for uh, a feature length duration. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite films of the past few years. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating and it's even more interesting when I learn how universal this kind of stories are or this kind of experience or pains are. Because even when you stage two different persons from two different families, it still works. It still resonates, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll just bring that uh, to a close. Um, a, lot, a lot more we'll, we'll be talking about. Um, but um, Aura, just thank you so much for coming and, and talking. It's a great pleasure, as ever. And yeah. uh, uh, thank you for having me. Thank you, Delga. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting Martin Eden from director Pietro Marcello. Based on the classic novel by Jack London, this Venice and Toronto award winner was an official selection of the 57th New York Film Festival and comes to theaters starting April 17th. This week's podcast is sponsored by the River Run International Film Festival, March 26th through April 5th, featuring over 170 films and special guests, including Tony Bill and Helen Bartlett. Info at riverrunfilm.com slash getaway.